0: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dear
1: Prudence. Dear Prudence.
0: Dear Prudence.
2: Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. This is Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. And today in the studio, we've got with us Slate's very own Christina Cotarucci. And before we get started today, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about summer jobs. We are coming up on summer. We're not coming up on summer. We're in the middle of summer. And I was thinking the other day, especially of a particular phrase that gets used a lot when people have summer jobs, especially in retail or, or in food service, And it's one of the most upsetting phrases, I think, in human history, and that is, if there's time to lean, there's time to clean, which is a thing that shift managers actually say to people uh, who have jobs usually working with customers. And it sounds like the most dystopian, Dr. Seuss rhyming couplet I can possibly think of. First of all, you should never berate people in rhyme. That's horrifying. Um, There's something about it that just feels really creepy and also... You know, if people need to lean, we're not horses. We can't lock our knees for 8 solid hours. Like if you're listening to this and you're a shift manager, I'm certainly not encouraging you to just overlook lolly gagging. Obviously encourage side work, like people should should be working during their shifts. But maybe if someone has time to lean, they really need to lean. And you should consider allowing it and not speaking to them like some sort of sinister gesture. Like, if there is time to lean, there is time to clean. Why do you take away work from the queen? Like, that's creepy. I don't think you should do it. I don't like it. I didn't like it when I was working. I don't like hearing it when I overhear a manager say it. Now, please stop. And that's all I have to say about that today. I have never
2: heard that phrase, and I am thoroughly disturbed by it. It actually reminds me of my worst summer job when I worked at Cesario's Pizza in Manchester, New Hampshire. Do not patronize it if it's (laughs) still there. Uh, I lasted about three days. The managers yelled at me, sexually harassed me, made me cry. And I'm sure though they never actually specifically told me that I should be cleaning rather than leaning, that that is the motivating force behind their business and employee philosophy.
1: I mean, if you think about it, the the phrase is literally if you exhibit any sort of physical vulnerability, <laughs> you must begin scrubbing floors.
2: Especially because uh maybe the place is clean. That was that was
1: always the most, I think sort of uh, insanity-inducing aspect of it was this would often be I had done all my side work, and there was a genuine lull. Like, sometimes there is truly no work to be done for several minutes. And then a manager would blow through and say, if there's time to lean, there's time to clean. It would just be like, everything's clean. I could sort of be perpetually rubbing down the counter with a rag like an old-timey <laughs> bar keep, but that would purely be... Uh, like an exhibition like it would just be going through the motions to make you happy there's truly nothing to be done right now
2: yeah and i think people need a little bit of lean time in order to make their clean time as
1: productive as possible look at that you came up with a rhyme (laughs) right back at them take that we've got our own rhymes
2: (laughs) i don't know what the slate version would be if there's time to gripe there's time to type
1: Why don't we um, go ahead and take some letters now? This one's called Toxic Friend. I have a friend who has both high-functioning autism and anxiety. Often, we have found her using her disorders as an excuse to behave poorly. I really hate to say that because I want to be supportive of her mental health needs, but I feel that there's no other explanation. She'll flirt with my boyfriend, touching him, trying to hold his hand, and joking that they'd be a cute couple together, and then burst into tears when he tells her to knock it off telling us that she can't help it, and often creating a very public scene. She will also hit and jab us with her nails, hard enough to leave marks, take our things, and blame it on her disorders. Again, when we tell her to cut it out, she bursts into tears. We didn't start having these confrontations in public. We've taken her aside to talk privately, and we get the same results. Most of our group of friends is fed up with her behavior, but a few insist that she can't help it, and will often bring her along, uninvited, to every event, even into my home. Many of us are not sure what to do because we do not want to cause a rift. Any advice would be appreciated. So we thought we would start you off with a really easy one.
2: Uh, Well, first of all, I don't think uh, any friend that's physically abusive deserves a place in anyone's life, especially if that friend offers repeated excuses for their abuse.
1: Right. And I think this, this sort of needs to be said. Anybody who would attempt to use something like, Having autism or, or dealing with anxiety as an excuse for <clears throat> physically hurting other people, um, that's just not true. There's, 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 that's a really um, unpleasant way of, of sort of weaponizing a diagnosis. Uh, the vast, vast majority of people with either uh, anxiety disorders or who are on the spectrum do not hurt other people. And, and I think it's uh, sort of insulting to, to those people to suggest, I, I can't help but harm you uh because of my emotional or mental uh, uh issues um is is a cop out um and it's it's destructive it's destructive and it kind of perpetuates the stigma against mental health issues
2: and probably does a disservice to anyone else in this friend group who might also be uh you know living with anxiety and has to watch somebody uh take advantage of that diagnosis to make her manipulative behavior seem appropriate.
1: Right, right. And and I, of course, uh, I, I also want to be sympathetic to this person who's clearly in a lot of distress. But I think the really important thing to remember for the letter writer is uh, you're absolutely right in saying that she should not be trying to hold your boyfriend's hand or telling him that he'd be better off with her um, and that it's not OK when she jabs you with her fingernails and it's really appropriate for you to draw a boundary uh, and if anybody, like like your friends are sort of working against you by saying, well, we're bringing her over to your house anyways, um, it's really okay for you to say "Then you need to leave.
2: Yeah, I think it's appropriate to make that a condition for any friend hangout, whether at this person's own house or in a group, um, just to say, you know, I-, I want to hang out with you, but... If this other person is going to be there, I can't.
1: Yeah, and I think to make it really clear that this is about behavior and to not sort of, you know, the the, the line that her other friends have sort of bought is because she experiences these mental and emotional issues, her behavior is completely out of her control. So if you are asking her not to come around because of her behavior, it's actually about her autism, her anxiety. Um, and that's clearly not the case, and that's not something she needs to buy into. So to make it really clear, if someone tries to say, well, uh, you're stigmatizing her or, or "or this is you're prejudiced against her, to make it really clear, this is about behavior. Um, this is about I don't want her to hit me. Um, and I don't want her to try to hold my boyfriend's hand and tell him that they should go out. Like, that's a... You should stand firm in the truth that you are being sensible, reasonable, um, and and not at all prejudiced uh, by asking for that.
2: Yeah, and the hard thing about making it about autism or anxiety is, I mean, I can totally understand where this letter writer is coming from because it's it's human nature, especially if this is a friend or part of a group of friends, to feel sympathetic and to want to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. And of course, you know, in in any friendship, uh, we overlook and explain away annoying and sometimes harmful behaviors, but it's clear that this one, this just crosses the line. Um, and so I can really understand where the person is coming from. I don't think, uh, you know, they're a pushover mm-hmm. or they shouldn't feel bad about uh, having put up with this behavior for so long um i hope they can find the strength to put their foot down
1: yep yep and i i I, I understand their reluctance because i think it's far more common that people would not be accommodating to a friend with anxiety and Mm -hmm. autism um i think that that they're understandably worried about being that sort of person who says, well, you behave in a way that I find slightly confusing or different, and so I don't want you around me. Um, And I think that that's good that they're very careful about not wanting to do that, but, um, you know, like, it's it's really, like, the fact that she uses tears to keep people from calling her out on her behavior is really, um, I think, manipulative. Uh, And I think it's a way to stop the conversation. Like, oh, if you're going to... Sorry, everyone. Um, if, if if you're going to say I can't hit on your boyfriend in front of you, I'm going to start to cry. And now the conversation becomes around, I'm sad, people have to make me feel better by overlooking the thing I just did and promising me that they won't challenge me on it in the future. Um, and that's um, not something that you have to give into. Right. Um, and I hope, you know, if, if this
2: person does end up getting help uh, or, or being able to if this person – if this toxic friend ends up uh, finding a way to change their behaviors for good, um, I hope that you know their friends would hopefully give them the benefit of the doubt. But uh, there's only so many chances you can give somebody before it's clear that the problem is uh, with them and that it's making everyone's life a little bit worse because of it. Right.
1: And you can always say, like, I genuinely wish this person well. I don't wish them harm, but it's also really clear to me that I don't want them around me. Um, And those are two things. I think you can say that without saying this person is bad and should be consigned to, you know, being cast out and no one should ever help them. You can say, I hope this person is able to improve the way they treat their friends. Um, That said, I also don't want to spend time together because they've made it clear that they're going to um, behave super inappropriately with my partner and try to hurt, hurt me.
2: Yeah, and not that I necessarily think these friends are enablers or anything, but that might be a message that this toxic friend needs to hear, mm-hmm. that uh, this kind of behavior is not appropriate and it's going to cost them a lot of relationships.
1: Right. This is way lower down on the scale, but I don't love the use of the word toxic to describe people. I can understand why it's useful because it's kind of describing This person has a real habit of bringing pain into my life, but it it sort of makes it sound like some people are radioactive or (laughs) somehow, like, inherently uh, damaging to be around. And I think um, that can get uh, really—that makes me nervous when someone someone is described as toxic in such a way that's sort of like—and therefore— uh, I don't have to think of them as a person and everyone should understand that we should all be cutting them out of their lives. And I think it's more important to focus on her behavior rather than to right. say this is a toxic person. I don't know why that's a distinction that feels important to me. Um, but for whatever it's worth, I don't think this is the primary issue here. But uh, yeah, I think if you're going to call someone toxic, maybe think for a minute about what you're what you're trying to accomplish there.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's uh, calling a person toxic would probably be unfair to a, a very good person and also unfair mm-hmm. to a very very uh a person who behaves in a toxic manner most of the right. time Right? yeah
1: because i mean i think there's there's certainly a chance that this woman could be given feedback and and try to change like she might become not toxic in the future mm-hmm. and then i think it would be harder to to recast the way you thought of her if you had already sort of mentally consigned her to toxicity all right right i feel like we've handled this one great uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the next letter. So this one is called Married but Living Apart. Dear Prudence, After my youngest child turned 18, my brother went overseas for a short-term job. I've been staying at his vacant house for three months to house it and partly to get a break from all the mothering I've been doing since my early 20s. My house-sitting services are about to end, and the problem is I don't want to move back into my house. I love having my own place, and I want to find some place to rent on my own. I love my husband and adult children who all live at home. But it's nice... Very nice to be by myself. I never had that. My husband is the kind of person who needs mothering, and I actually feel closer to him now that we live separately. We see each other regularly, and I have zero interest in actually separating from our marriage or seeing other people. Am I crazy and selfish? Is it outrageous for a happily married couple to live apart? I love this question,
2: uh, mostly because I don't think it's outrageous for a happily married couple to live apart. I think there should be more room for that in marriages. I think that... People should always just uh, do what feels right, whether that's cohabitating or living apart some of the time or all of the time. Um, So first of all, I just want to say that I don't think that that's being crazy or selfish. Um, I think if that's what works best, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there could be some solutions for this person that don't necessarily mean renting a completely separate apartment. First of all, it seems like part of the problem is that the adult children and presumably adult husband need mothering, uh, right. that's unfair
1: and seems like something that could be solved I within sort of the home. I always sort of bristle at that description, like, well, my husband's the kind of person who needs mothering. <laughs> and you can sort of hear in that, oh, they had a conversation a long time ago where he just established himself as, what are you going to do? I'm the kind of person who needs mothering. (laughs) You know, that kind of person who's not capable of taking care of himself, that kind of person you have to commit to mothering for the rest of his life. You know, that kind who can't change or learn. (laughs) Um, And it's like, he probably enjoys mothering. He probably loves the way that you mother him. But um, he won't die if you stop. It's very unlikely, I think, um, especially given that she doesn't mention that there's any sort of condition he has that requires full-time care, uh, that he does not, in fact, need mothering. And um, maybe this is sort of the first time she's realized that she doesn't have to because she was able to live apart from him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, you could also live at home and not pick up after him. And not take care of him and not make his appointments for him and not, you know, I'm just picturing her like feeding him mango, which (laughs) is probably an unfair picture of mothering. Like, you know, just like putting mango into his mouth. That's above and beyond what a mother should do. Do you feel nurtured? Um, (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like this house sitting
2: could have been a good opportunity for both of them, hopefully for the husband to realize that mothering does not need to be a primary part of their marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do
1: want to give him a little credit. She's not saying, like, he's been calling, asking when I'm going to come home. He's really demanding of this. It's, uh, you know, maybe on some level he is happy to see her happy.
2: Yeah, and I think the fact that she said that they feel closer now, or at least she feels closer to him now that they're apart, seems like it could maybe be working for him, too. She doesn't say their house is falling apart, that, you know, everyone has scurvy. It seems like they've been living mm-hmm. without her. Um, and I think, you know, should she decide to move back in, it would probably be important to set boundaries about not mothering adults. Sure, Um, But
1: those are kind of two separate issues, right? One is if we do live together, how do we relate to each other in a way that I don't feel like I'm going to be your mom until I die? mm -hmm. And the other one is it's not just that she likes not picking up after him as much. She really likes living alone. Um, and wants to know if she can kind of give that a try. Like, is it okay for someone with children who live at home, um, even though they're adults, and, and and a husband that she wants to stay committed to? Like, could she live by herself and, and, and have that not be a step back from her family?
2: I think that's completely doable, um, especially since everyone's an adult in the mm-hmm. picture. Uh, there's nobody that needs full-time care, like you said. Right, I think right. that... It's possible for adults to have close relationships, familial relationships without living in the same house. I think it's kind of a funny uh, flip of the empty nest syndrome that the children stay in the house and the mother moves out.
1: Right. So so do we think she should go sign a lease like tomorrow? I think that that
2: uh, seems like it would be a big step from mothering children and a husband to completely living apart, I think, you know, it it would necessitate a lot of conversation with the husband and children. I Mm -hmm. think if that's what's right for her, she should totally do it. I also think it's possible to, um, you know, if you've got the money to spend on renting a completely separate apartment to outfit a part of the house that is just for you, Um, a, you know, a person cave, if you will um or to spend that money on trips or to to live apart part of the time if if it seems like too big of a step to live apart all of the time.
1: Yeah, I was thinking my my first thought was why not keep house sitting? Like if it turns out you're pretty good at it if you offer your services, there's a lot of different websites um where you can kind of list yourself as a potential house sitter and sort of ask around like maybe try another few months of of house sitting as sort of a trial experiment because it's not the financial commitment of signing your own place, but um, you can continue to live by yourself and sort of see how, you know, are things really still good between me and my husband? Is this making me realize uh, I want to do this forever or I would only like to do it for part of the year? Like there's a lot of different ways that living apart could look um, and it might be helpful for her to do a couple little trial runs and try to figure out what she wants.
2: That's a great idea. And I hope, I mean, I think more people should think really intentionally about whether living with a married partner is the right thing to do. I mean, I, before I moved in with my partner a couple years ago, and we're not married, but I remember thinking, like, it's so hard to find a good roommate. What are the chances that the person I love and want to spend my life with is also going to be a good roommate for me?
1: Yeah. I'm also kind of impressed that we've made it through this entire conversation without dropping um, Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Because I feel like this <laughs> always comes up when people are talking about, like, you know, someday if I ever get married, I just want to have, like, a town home that's right next door to the town home of my partner. And we can, like, meet sometimes in the evenings in our living rooms and have long, lazy dinner parties. But, like... We can go back to sleep in our own bedrooms, just like Goldie and Kurt. Um, and if they ever split up, I think everyone's going to lose it. So, yes, do it. Live apart. <laughs> Great Give it analogy. A yeah. See, see how it goes. <laughs> I want to take a break for just a moment to remind you that the complete Dear Prudence podcast experience is exclusive to Slate Plus members, hours and hours of me talking about Steely Dan. Members get much more of this show, more questions, more answers, more talk, more advice, more steely Dan factoids, or Dandoids, as I like to call them. I don't call them that. With no ads or interruptions. They also get more of the Dear Prudence column on Slate.com. And that's not all. Slate Plus members get longer, ad-free versions of other Slate podcasts, too. They get access to the ambitious Slate Academy series like the History of American Slavery and a Year of Great Books. They're first in line for tickets to Slate events like live podcast tapings, and they get 30% off of tickets. That's not even all. The whole thing is just $5 a month or $50 for a year. Try it free for two weeks. Go to slate.com slash prudiepod, that's P-R-U-D-I-E pod, to sign up.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at
1: chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BDW, void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Uh, this next letter is called What Could Have Been. Dear Prudence, seven years ago, I found myself pregnant by a man I'd only recently started dating. I had just turned 20 and was terrified by the thought of motherhood. The father, let's call him Ted, and I decided that it would be best to terminate the pregnancy. I was and still am at peace with my decision. Fast forward to now, Ted and I have been married for almost two years. We have a wonderful relationship and love one another deeply. Recently, Ted has expressed interest in having a baby. Although he knows that the idea of pregnancy and birth and being responsible for a human being scares me, he hopes that I will change my mind. Before we got married, we talked about the possibility of having kids, but neither of us found the idea very desirable. Ted has also brought up the, ter- the pregnancy that we decided to terminate and says that he now feels bad because that may have been his only chance of fatherhood. This is deeply upsetting to me because I always believed him that we both felt like this was the best decision for us. I'm afraid that he will secretly resent me for not giving him children, although he denies it. Do you think we can move on from this? How can I help my husband more in the life that could have been? I, w- I wish we could go back to Kurt and Goldie. I know, this is
2: difficult. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think there's, I I feel like I say this all the time. I think there's two issues here. Um, And I do think there are two issues here. One is whether or not these two, um, like, how they can compromise, where it sounds like one person wants a baby and the other person um, isn't 100% sure but is definitely leaning towards no. And the other one is, is it okay for him to bring up an abortion that you had seven years ago um, in order to try to change your mind about having children now? And the first issue, like, we can talk about that one. That's great. Um, The second one's pretty shitty, hmm Like to say, hey, remember that abortion we both agreed was a really good idea seven years ago? Well, now I feel bad about it. And I think it was my only chance at fatherhood. <laughs> and I'd like to make you feel so bad that you give me like a regret baby now.
2: Yeah. To me, that sounds like uh, manipulative behavior, especially because it's clear that they were both being honest with each other. It seems like even Ted recognizes that, uh, you know, that was a decision he made. He regrets that decision, but that, you know, they were honest with each other at the time. Um, and to make somebody feel bad about that or to hold that over their head as a reason to enter parenthood uh, is a pretty shitty move.
1: Right. Yeah. You both agreed at the time that an abortion was the right choice. Um, it's really, I would say, like really unkind of him to bring it up now and to suggest that she has taken away something from him. This was a decision you both agreed upon. It was not right for you at the time. It's a totally separate issue from whether or not you guys should have a child now. Um, and I think he needs to knock it off. I think he needs to, if he's if, like having a lot of conflict about the idea of never being a parent, he can talk about that. That's fine. But to bring up uh, her previous abortion is is underhanded and and frankly, ungentlemanly. Sir, like, <laughs> And also just illogical because
2: that if they hadn't terminated the pregnancy, the idea of fatherhood would have looked completely different seven years ago than whatever he's imagining it to be now.
1: Yeah. I mean, y- you can't unring that bell. Like there's no reason to bring it up now. So like strike one against Ted. Um, not impressed. Uh, the other issue is, you know. Do you think we can move on from this? How do I help my husband mourn the life that could have been? Okay, I mean, that says to me, this person's not conflicted. She doesn't want a baby. This woman does not want to be a parent. Her mm-hmm. goal is to help her husband accept that. Like, she does not want to be talked into it. She's not sort of on the fence. She's in the no category. And I think it's
2: telling maybe that she used the word mourn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and plenty of people do memorialize and name Um, potential children that they've lost through miscarriages. I'm sure some people do that for after abortions, too. Um, I think if it truly is something that he's grieving about, that could be an option. No,
1: that's bullshit. Because seven years ago, he wasn't sad. Seven years. Like, at the time, he was like, this is a really good idea. Like, this is he's a different he's in a different place now. This has nothing to do with the abortion. Like, you don't get, like, delayed onset abortion grief seven (laughs) years later.
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time understanding abortion grief to begin with, so I don't want to, you know, make any judgments against somebody who does experience that. I guess also it's different coming from the person who's— was not carrying the pregnancy to begin with
1: yeah i I mean he was fine at the time he wants something different now and i think he sees her previous abortion as a useful bargaining chip and i'm just not going to let him do it like i i'm coming down hard against it no do you think uh do you think they should that they can compromise Mm, no uh i think he can either accept the fact that she doesn't want to have children he's not going to be a parent um, or he can decide that being a father is important enough to him that he's going to have to leave the relationship. Um, but I'm not seeing anything in her letter that suggests um, she's interested in being talked around um, or that the two of them would be good parents together, frankly. Like, if this is the way that he wants to open the conversation, like, hey, remember when you ruined my only chance of becoming a parent um, and how I said I supported the abortion at the time, but I've changed my mind now? Like, that's not... That's not the beginning of, like, a great parenting story. Um, right. And, and not I'm, the beginning of a great
2: parent either, if, if either right. parent enters it because of guilt or regret.
1: Right. Right. I, I would have a lot more respect for his position if he just said, look, like, cards on the table. I've realized I really want to become a father. This is deeply important to me. Um and I wanna be really honest about what I want, which is just to have a child. And if, if he could just be honest about that, um and not try to use her past against her, not try to rewrite the things that they did together that they both agreed upon at the time. Um, I, I, I would think there was maybe a slightly better chance of compromise. But as it is, um I don't know. I don't I don't have a lot of hope for this relationship. Um And I hope very much that she doesn't allow him to kind of manipulate her into, like, quote-unquote, giving him a baby because she took one away from him in the past, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah,
2: it's not her responsibility to
1: give him children. That is a really kind of disturbing way to put it. Right. If he wants to be a father someday, he's responsible for making that happen. That's not something that she is the gatekeeper of. Like, if you want to be a parent after marrying somebody where you both agreed we don't want children— like, the onus is upon you to make yourself clear and to make a decision.
2: Mm-hmm. And if you really, you know, wanted to commit to the relationship and if they did, if he stopped uh, holding the abortion over her head, uh, there's plenty of ways to be involved with children and have impacts on children's lives that don't involve parenthood. So, Nope, it's parenting or nothing.
1: <laughs> That's it. You can't help children otherwise. I don't know if you knew that, but there's no other way to help them. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining us uh, today and for giving all your wonderful opinions to us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Speaking, by the way, of breakups and how to conduct yourself in such a way, not always that you're being your best self, because none of us can be our best self through the entirety of a breakup, but um, in such a way that people will not send emails that you have sent them to advice columnists. Uh, I recently got an example of one way to really hamstring yourself from a reader who had recently uh, ended things with a girlfriend. And the girlfriend had sent an email saying, you know, never talk to me again. Like, you and I have nothing left to say to each other. I'm furious with you. I never want to talk to you again. Which is definitely like a choice that you can make. Like, that's a strong ending. That's like, I don't need you. I don't want you my life. We are donezo. And like really sticking to it is a strong choice. It's not always the best choice, but it's a strong one. Um, You undermine the strength of that choice when you follow it up with an email saying, unless you happen to find my Starbucks card, uh, I think that I had it in a bag or maybe put it in your wallet and left it there. And I always have a really good feeling when I use that card because it gives me positive associations with the city that they were in. I don't want to give away too many identifying details. I can't remember where it is, but you might stumble on it. And if you do, please throw it in an envelope and send it to me and then gives their work address. Like, I strongly encourage you to let that Starbucks card go. I mean, I understand that sometimes... Like, having a Starbucks card is really wonderful, um, but, like, just eat the $15, you know? Like, don't don't let that ruin the strength of never talk to me again unless you find my Starbucks card. I am not sure where it is. Maybe in a bag. Maybe in a wallet. Anyways, I like Starbucks a lot, and so if you find it, please mail it to my place of work. Like, that's just, that's a weak ending. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. It gives meaning to my life. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed, I Am Told, by Robin Hilton. I have no proof of this. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Do you want us to answer your question? Call and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 401-371-3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name and location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. If you'd like, you can also record your question using the voice memo app or equivalent on your smartphone. Please keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Send it to me at prudence at slate.com. Remember, you can hear longer, extra special bonus episodes of Dear Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. Go do it now. It's not even like an interestingly good ending, like, please, please take me back. It's just, I'll never talk to you again unless I think I could get three to four lattes out of it. Like, that's that's petty. Don't be petty. And if you're going to be petty, be petty in a in a magnificent and operatic sort of way. Be really petty. Be petty like, and remember the third time we went out and I said I liked that thing you like? Well, I didn't. Like, that's that's the kind of petty that you should really be reaching for, not like... Do you have my Starbucks rewards card? Um, this, by the way, has not been sponsored by Starbucks in in any way. They are not interested in this podcast. I don't think this story paints them in a particularly positive light. Um, just wanted you to know that.
0: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>